Welcome to the Grace Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., we gather together at the Malco Theater in Collierville, Tennessee, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by worshiping God through music, scripture, and a message for our lives. So if you're looking for a church home where you can feel loved and accepted as part of God's family, then come and join us at Grace Hill Church. You can visit our website at gracehill901.com for more information about our services and what we have planned for the upcoming weeks. We look forward to connecting with you. Now here's this week's message. So I want to jump right in uh, today. Uh, what you're supposed to do at the beginning of a, a, a message, a, a, a time here where we're going to look uh, at, a, at a scripture and, and, and unpack it, is uh, you're supposed to, at the beginning of the message, create tension. And you do that by telling a story that then somehow or another connects to the message. You, you do that by maybe kind of highlighting a, a, a known tension that we all have in our life. Uh, and then what you do is you transition and you connect that to the spiritual idea that the text we're going to look at today is going to address. But I think that the big idea we're going to look at today, uh, just when you see it come up on the screen, um, I think the big idea creates enough tension for us already that uh, we're just going to jump right in. How about it? So the big idea today is this, is we want to think differently about allegiance, unity, and suffering. Allegiance, unity, and suffering. Enough tension in the room already, what we have allegiance to, how we create unity, and as we go through life, what God's call on our life, what Jesus' invitation for us is to suffer well as Christ's followers. And while in this world, uh, allegiance is often thin, uh, and unity is often frail, and suffering, at least here in the West in America, is to be avoided at all costs. Paul, in this text, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, is actually going to give us a picture of what it looks like when allegiance is deep and true, when unity is actually centered around something that is ironclad, and suffering is no longer something to be avoided, but embraced as a key element of discipleship to King Jesus. And so what we do here at Grace Hill is when we read God's word, we stand. We stand for the reading of God's word. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to read uh, 10 verses, 20 through uh, verse 30. If you've got a copy of your text, you can go there. If not, it's going to be up on the screen, uh, but I want to read it for us this morning. This is Paul writing uh, to this church that he loves so much. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed. But I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For me, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I don't really know what what is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, I will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because what he is doing through me. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them 
that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. So the first thing that Paul's going to highlight here that we want to take a dive on for just a few moments is this idea of allegiance. And primarily what Paul is calling us to and is calling the church here at Philippi to is allegiance to Jesus. Now, this is the first exhortation, 27 verses in. Again, Paul wasn't writing, you know, verse 27. Now, here's the first exhortation. He's just writing a letter. And we came along, somebody came along and put verse numbers on it to make it easier for us to read and teach and and preach from. But in verse 27 is Paul's first exhortation that he gives here uh, to the church at Philippi. And and Philippi uh, is a, a church that has been planted, remember, some 11 plus years prior to this letter being received. And Philippi was a hard place to stay in allegiance to Jesus. You see, in a place like Philippi, it was a, it was a colony, it was a community of, uh, of Rome, of the Roman Empire. And the cult of the emperor was pervasive. There would have been a, a, a cult-type uh, paraphernalia everywhere regarding the emperor as true king, the emperor as a god, or uh, in many cases, and you've heard me talk about this in the past, that the emperor was lord of all. That was the mantra that was given uh, to the culture at the time when Paul is writing this letter. And the attractiveness of the culture Philippi would have also been uh, compelling. It would have been a seismic pull for the hearts and the souls of those who were following Jesus at this time uh, in this church and in this community. There was competition for the allegiance of every heart in this church. And Paul uses an interesting phrase in verse 27. Let's, let's, Let's look at it again. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Above all. In many ways, this was a letter that has kind of been designed to sort of build up. Paul has sort of slowly been building his case. And now it sort of crescendos into this moment where he says, above all, I want you to know. It's it's as if he's saying, it's as if Paul's saying, "If, if you don't get anything else, if you don't walk away from anything else, above all, I want you to get this one thing that you are citizens of heaven. Now, it's important to understand that Paul probably had more in mind uh, around this metaphor uh, uh, for where God dwells than a literal place of heaven. It was more of a kind of a figurative idea of, hey, this is where God dwells. He, He dwells in heaven. He dwells in the heavenly places. And But, but either way, he's setting up the tension that our hearts... And our allegiance should not dwell anywhere else. And the, the word that he uses here in the Greek for citizens of heaven, it, it gives us this idea. It gives us this idea of living for an allegiance of another kind. Living for an allegiance 
of another kind. A, a scholar commentator, Gordon Fee, I'm, I'm going to reference him several times uh, in the message today, but Gordon Fee is uh, one of the foremost scholars on the book of Philippians. He has this to say, just kind of gives you a, a picture into what Paul's thinking here. He says this, Paul uses a political metaphor, which will appear again in chapter three, verses 20 and 21. The people of Philippi took due pride in their having been made a Roman colony by Caesar Augustus which brought the privileges and prestige of Roman citizenship. Now, Paul now urges them to live out their citizenship, conduct yourselves in a manner, and the sentence begins with these emphatic words, worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is intended by this wordplay is something like, live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. It's as if Paul's saying, hey, you uh, church at Philippi, you Philippians, you live in Philippi, yes. And the pull and the allure of the convenience and the status and the prestige and the privilege that comes with Rome, yes, is real. The ease and the good life that Rome offers you feels compelling. But as if Paul is saying, you don't forget you are a citizen of heaven. And as such, your life should reflect or be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. You see, Paul is dealing with the, the issue of allegiance. It, it, without saying it clear here, uh, in, 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 in clear terms, what he's essentially doing is he's framing up, you will either be allegiant, have allegiance, to Rome, or you will have allegiance to Jesus. Jesus talked about the tension in, in Matthew chapter 6. He talked about the tension between serving two masters. Even Jesus knew that you were not going to be able to have a fully a, a heart that was given over in allegiance to God and partially given over to something else. Paul was saying here, you view yourself as a citizen of heaven or if you're not careful, you will view yourself as a citizen of the empire. So we think about this today, and, and your mind may, may already be going there. You, you may have already started connecting the dots already. But how would this apply in our lives today? If, if, if we received a letter from the past from Paul, and Paul had the ability to Marty McFly into 2023 and see what was happening in our community and our culture, and, and back when he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, he also addressed a, a letter to the church in America. What might he say? How, how might he apply the same idea of allegiance to Jesus over allegiance to anything else. Can I, can I say this to you this morning? Is, is there not a pervasive, oftentimes compelling pull to allegiance of our community, allegiance to our country over and above anything else? And, and I think Paul is not using allegiance uh, in this idea as a metaphor. I think he's literally saying, where is your heart given? Where does your loyalty lie? Where do we have allegiance in our life? But I think what, 
what we need to understand about this is this is here is yes, man, where we live, it offers so much and there's so much ease and convenience and, 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 and great amenities that we have. And, and I'm thankful for the freedoms that we, we currently have in America. I'm thankful for those. But what Paul would say to us is this, is that as citizens of heaven, there is so much more to live for. There's so much more important things for our lives to be focused on. And it's important to know that what Paul is not saying here, what Paul is not saying here is don't be a good citizen where you live. Don't be destructive. I love the book. It's on my reading list this, this year. Uh, it's, a, it's a book written to Christ, Christians, and the book is called Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk. Paul is not saying, give up your civic responsibilities. In Romans, he talks about praying for your leaders. I think Paul would encourage us us to plug in and, and do what we can to make our community a better place, but not at the expense of forgetting that our citizenship is in heaven, that our allegiance is to King Jesus over and above anything else. And so let me ask you this question. I would love for you to maybe write this down in your handout that you got when you came in. I would love for you to write this question down and just kind of wrestle with it this week. What would change in my life if my allegiance was fully given over to Jesus? Would some of the anxiety that you have in your life about as you look out into our world and the state of our country and and the different things that take shape and place, would maybe, possibly, if allegiance was fully given over to King Jesus, would would maybe some of the worry and the anxiety and the fear just subside a little bit? Because your, your citizenship, your allegiance is something now entirely different. His encouragement here as we live out our lives and in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our communities, in our country, is to do it as ambassadors with allegiance to King Jesus and citizens of heaven. And with that, Paul brings into this a different way to live. That it's not only just allegiance to King Jesus, but it actually changes the way that we live. He says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Janine Brown has this to say about this text. She says this, taking the gospel as the measure for worthy citizenship is striking Given that it is an inner Christian criterion that was otherwise acknowledged by no one and could be controversial politically. As cities, again, she's writing about this time. As cities expected their citizens to live in undivided loyalty to their laws, norms, and ideals, Paul expects believers in Jesus to live in undivided loyalty to the norms and values implicit in the gospel and to Jesus as Lord. Remember, we've talked about over the last few weeks in this series that the word gospel, or in some translations, good news, is the Greek word euangelion. And, it, and, it, and that's not a Christian word. That, that wasn't the early church was like, hmm, we got to come up with a way to describe this thing that's happened, <gasps> euangelion. No, they just, they just took a cultural word that was a military term, and they just imported it into their way of thinking. 
The euangelion simply means good news or gospel. And when a conquering king would take over or a king would claim a new territory, he would send messengers out with this good news, with the euangelion of the king, the message of the king. And the church, the early church said, well, we've got the best good news. We've got the best gospel. And that is that Christ Jesus has come to earth. He lived, he died, and he rose again inaugurated a new kingdom and a new way to live for all of humanity, for all of time. And we now get to be participants, ambassadors, and, and, and be aligned and give allegiance to that king as his followers. It is a new gospel, a new good news in this time when Paul is writing. And one way that our behavior differs as citizens of heaven is the way we approach the idea of unity. And it is a unity around Jesus. Look look at what he says in, in the rest of verse 27. Then whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. There's our word again, gospel euangelion. So what Paul is is bringing to the church here, uh, the Philippian church, is he's bringing this idea that what we unify, where we have unity is we have unity around Jesus. We have unity around this good news. We have unity around this gospel. And and Paul, I love that that at the beginning of this verse, he almost sort of dismisses the concern about whether or not he's going to be able to come see them or not. Whether I come see you or not, I'll hear that you're standing firm. And I love the language that he uses here, the the way that he gives a picture of what unity in the church could and should be. He says this, he uses words like standing together, not standing apart. He uses the idea of oneness, one spirit and one purpose. What one commentator said is this was a call to operate as one person, to reach their goal. They were unified together, but, but what would they unify around? I mean, there's lots of things we can unify around. What is it here? Paul says, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. I, I love this. In, in one, of the, one of the commentaries I was working through this week, the, the guy said it this way. And, and if I would have read this, honest to goodness, uh, elders and staff in a minute are going to be like, oh, dear Jesus, we're going to go back to the drawing board. No, we're not. But if I'd have read this statement six months ago, this would have been somewhere in our vision language. I love what he says here. This one commentator called this call to action by Paul, the communal resistance of the Philippian church. The communal resistance of the Philippian church. What a picture of unity. That where other things would would seek to divide us and pull us apart, where culture would attempt to, to rob us of unity, we are aligned and unified around the gospel of King Jesus. And that alone is our communal resistance to the unity that the world tries to put out there. I mean, it doesn't take much to know that unity is a problem, right? I mean, it, that, that's, that's a church problem. That's a marketplace problem. Students, you know whether you play on a sports team or you're part of a, a band, a choir, a fine arts, a, any kind of extracurricular activity. The idea of unity everywhere is a problem. 
Some of you ended up at this church because unity was an issue with your last church. And you got so tired of the division and the fighting and the backbiting and the gossip and you just said, peace, I'm out. Some of you have had a hard time leaning into church because you experienced disunity at a church in your past. There's so much standing against, fighting against. But you see, what Paul wants us to know here is that the gospel of King Jesus gives us a different way. A way to unify that actually transcends those differences. It's very similar. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a similar idea, a picture that Paul gives in the letter to the Galatians, to, to, to the church at Galatia. Where he talks about there, now, because of what King Jesus is, there, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female. All of the barriers that could divide us have been removed, and now we are one in Christ Jesus. That's why I love our vision statement as a church. Is it aspirational? Oh, absolutely. Will it feel like at some points that we're actually regressing instead of progressing through that vision? Yeah, absolutely. But I love that it holds out what I think is the heart of what the local church in 2023 should be. The, the vision statement is, is, says this, that we want to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. And you'll see it as you, as you walk out the, the door here. Like we, We've gotten so committed to the idea of unity We've actually elevated it to the place where it's, it's, a, it's a strategic goal for this year. We want to do everything we can in our church to create unity among our people. But it is unity that the foundation of that unity is not a charismatic speaker, because I'm not. It is not in uh, anything that oftentimes the church wants to seek to draw people to. What I want our church to create unity around and hold me accountable to this is that we will create unity first and foremost around the gospel of King Jesus. That that is what we unify together around as a church and as a community seeking to become grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. We want to call people this year to partner together by attending Discover Grace Hill. Like I mentioned earlier, we had a, we had a great uh, first event this morning. And it's the idea that, I, I say this in the, in the class, is that, that, that uh, attending is consuming the mission, and that's okay. It, you may be in a season where the best thing for you to do is to attend. That's okay. You may be in a season of your life right now where the best thing for you to, to, to do is just sit and consume, heal, have a sense and place of belonging in your life. I'm okay, I'm a, I can trust these people. I can, I can trust Jesus again. I, I'm just here. But we want everybody to move from being an attender, a consumer, to being a partner and a contributor. Because we believe we've, that God's given us a vision where it's going to take everybody, everybody, committed together, unified together, as contributors to the vision that God has given us. I'll tell you another reason I want us to be unified as a church, because I think that unity, that gospel unity in the church is attractive for those seeking Jesus and seeking hope. They've heard the stories. They've read the tweets. They've seen the headlines to know how in many cases the church in America can be so broken over such secondary issues. And I think that unity in the local church 
Gospel unity can be attractive for those that are, that are seeking Jesus and seeking hope. I'll tell you another reason why I think that we need to have unity as a church. I, I wrote this number down this week. It's going to be on the screen. And I wrote it down, and, and I, you know, it's like kind of a moment like I felt prompted to share it, and I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to share that. Yeah, that, that, that can't, I can't share that number. But I began to mull over this all week long, this number, and, and, and the thought is this. What if over the, the next year, God called us to reach 100 people for Jesus? I mean, think about that for a minute. What if over the next year, we baptized 100 people who, who were once lost and now they're found? And you say that feels impossible. How many of you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Let's just show hands, seriously. You, you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus. We're over halfway there already. Begin to ask the Lord now, Lord, how, how can I begin to build a relationship with this person? How can I begin even now in this, in this relationship to extend the unity of Jesus, to model what it looks like to be a worthy citizen of heaven, of the gospel of Jesus in their life? Our staff team this week, we met because we've got some folks in our church who want to be baptized. And so I love Malco, but I don't think they're going to let us do that here. And so we got to figure out, okay, like, what are we going to do? And one of our core values as a church is the idea of celebrating. In Luke chapter 15, I'm way off my notes. I don't even know how I'm going to get back. But in Luke chapter 15... Jesus tells three parables of three things that were lost. And there are three things in that culture and day and age of ascending value. There were three, things, three, three items, three uh, uh, things that were lost that became found. And here's one of the similarities between all three of those stories. All three of them end in a party. Jesus said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner returns than over the 99 who don't need Jesus, who have already found Jesus. So our staff team started meeting this week to say, okay, well, we have a core value of celebrating. How do we celebrate and kind of model this Luke 15 idea that, man, when somebody comes and they find Jesus, we celebrate. We throw a party. What would it look like if we threw a party for people who got baptized? And out of that meeting, I wrote that number down. I started thinking, man, we're going to throw a lot of parties. But what if that happened over the next year? That we got so serious about this idea of gospel unity that all the things that the world says, oh, you should divide over this, and oh, if you don't have this opinion, you tribe out over here and you be with these people. What if over the next year we said, no, 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 the gospel of King Jesus is enough. It's enough to unify us. And we want to live as worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We want to live as worthy citizens of, of, of the kingdom of heaven under this idea of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion of King Jesus. Maybe that number would have to go up. Because I think unity to Jesus is so attractive to people who are hurt. I used it in our vision series, the bored, the bitter, and the broken. What could happen? Give me a minute. I got to find my spot. You see, to do this is going to require us to think differently about our allegiance 
and what we're dedicated to. And it's going to certainly require us to think differently about unity and who we're unified to and under. And finally, I think what Paul highlights here is that it's going to require us to think differently about suffering. And if it wasn't challenging enough for us to kind of process allegiance and unity, you know, suffering, we, we all work really, really hard to avoid suffering, don't we? And yet Paul, in verse 29, seems in some way to be encouraging us to embrace it. Look at what he says here in verse 29. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed. That's the idea of being a citizen in heaven and the unity to King Jesus. That, that, that our citizenship, our allegiance to King Jesus and our unity to Jesus, that alone will be a sign to those that we could be in fear of. He says, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. Listen to this. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. I joked with Randall this week on the phone. We were meeting and kind of talking through this text. And I said, you know, could you imagine that invitation uh, at uh, the fourth night of, you know, youth camp when you were growing up as a kid, if you went to youth camp? By the way, the fourth night's an inside joke. The fourth night's always the gospel presentation night. Can you imagine that? Hey, who here wants to believe in Jesus? Hands go up. Okay, you're also called to suffer for him. Every hand go down. But that's, that's what Paul is calling us here to embrace and to think differently about. Is, is it's not just trusting in Christ, or other translations say believing in Christ. But he doesn't use the word burden for suffering for him. He, he doesn't use the word Necessary responsibility for suffering from him. He says, privilege. That Paul is, is putting in front of us, he's laying in front of us this idea of suffering for the sake of Jesus. And Paul is writing this, don't forget, from prison. And, and he's just written the, the very famous words, maybe the, the most famous words to this point in Philippians. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And Paul literally, by all human standards, both then and certainly now, is suffering for Christ. And his audience knows this. The, the recipients of this letter know that Paul is in prison. And he's going to call them to share in suffering for the sake of Jesus? It's clear here that the, the church at Philippi is facing some kind of opposition, both kind of internally and externally. Randall talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that there was these, there's kind of these two factions that had emerged, and some people felt like they should give money to Paul, others felt like, no, we shouldn't. And so there was a little internal thing, but, but it also seems to be that there's some external pressure because of how deeply committed they are to one another and allegiance to Jesus. And Paul wants them to think about their opposition in the same way he does his. That that opposition is actually a privilege to trust and to suffer for him. So you say, well, well, well what have they done? What, what's caused their suffering? You know, Scripture 
sometimes like in Proverbs talks about the idea of suffering is, you know, it's your, you're suffering because of your foolish behavior. We've, we've all known people like that. We've never done anything that would cause us suffering because of foolish behavior. But, but we all know people who have made mistakes and now they're suffering for the mistakes that they've made. Um, scripture is also pretty clear that we we uh, that, that Jesus suffered. That we get this picture of Jesus. Matter of fact, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, portrays Jesus as this picture of a suffering servant. But but what would be the reason here? Are they suffering because of their foolish decisions? Are they suffering because of a tragedy or an accident? What is going on here? I think if you, if, you, if you zoom out from the book of Philippians, this letter, and you try to take a, a landscape view of what's going on here in this church, I think it becomes pretty clear. Is they're suffering because they have identified with King Jesus. That's why they're suffering. It's because the, the pull of the culture, the allure of the culture... The, the, the community that they, the broader community they find themselves in is so different because they themselves have chosen to be uh, aligned and, 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 and have their allegiance state on King Jesus and, and now suffering. Why? Maybe they're, they've become distant from some friends no, for no other reason than this allegiance to King Jesus. Maybe they've lost some business deals in the community. I don't know, but, but word gets out that these people are not aligned to the emperor. They're aligned to this, this Jewish rabbi who died, and they all say he rose again. This new gospel that has emerged in this community. Gordon Fee, very, very long quote, but I think it's so, so important for us to hear this. Gordon Fee again explains, he says this, but what kind of, po- what kind of opposition would possibly intimidate the Philippian believers? Although we cannot be certain, the best guess is related to the fact that Philippi was a Roman military colony where populace, for very good historical reasons, uh, were devoted to the emperor. In fact, the cult of the emperor, whose divine titles were Lord and Savior, apparently flourished in Philippi so that every public event also served as an opportunity to proclaim Caesar is Lord. In very much the same way as the Star Spangled Banner or O Canada is sung before public events in North America. The problem for believers is obvious and would easily arouse suspicions as well as hostility. For they were devoted to another Lord and Savior and would find proclaiming Caesar as Lord to be an impossible conflict of devotion. To top it all off, their Lord had in fact been crucified by the Roman Lord, thus branding him forever as an enemy of the state, of the insurrectionist type. Thus believers in Christ could scarcely be more out of touch with the sympathies of the local populace than in a place like Philippi. Hence Paul's concern that those who oppose them not intimidate them into consternation. We can suffer in our lives because of foolish decisions that we make. That's not what Paul's saying here. We can suffer in our lives because of tragedy, heartbreak, accidents, trauma that comes. That, 
Again, it's not what the type of suffering that Paul is calling us to and highlighting here. I want us to think about this idea of, of suffering in a way that doesn't sound nearly as kind of maybe catastrophic or apocalyptic in some ways. And I think in essence what, 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 what suffering is here is this idea of discipleship to Jesus is actually a form of suffering for Jesus. And you say, hey, wait a minute, man, I don't know about that. Let, let's, let's back up and let's think about this for just a minute. Gordon Fee, again, has this to say, Paul's attitude towards Christian suffering is altogether theological and Christocentric at its core. It is based on Christ's teachings on discipleship that servants are to be like their masters. Fleming Rutledge calls an Episcopal priest, she calls a Christian life without suffering, Easter without Good Friday. And that is a, what a good, uh, that's a good picture of what suffering for the sake of Jesus is for us. It is a picture of the cross. Jesus inserted the idea of suffering and discipleship to him in his very call to follow him. Mark chapter 8, then calling the crowd to join his disciples. To be a disciple to Jesus, to to follow in the way of Jesus, to discipleship to Jesus. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. Canadian scholar Douglas John Hall calls for the church to understand itself as the community of the cross. The community that suffers with literally compassion the community that willingly bears the stigma of the passion, that is the cross, in service to others. One verse, just to kind of wrap our minds around how suffering and discipleship go together, is Paul's writing to the church in Rome. Romans, 12, uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says this, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new church, a person by changing the way you think. Let me ask you this, students in the room, how easy is it for you to copy something? Requires almost no effort. Do you know how easy it is to copy the pattern of the world, to fall prey to the behaviors and the custom of the world around you? And let me be really, really clear. Let me just kind of time out here, and I gotta land this plane because I'm running out of time. But but let me just be really clear here. Let me apply that verse. That's not into the way of the world as we think of just like the hellish behavior that you just think in your mind, oh, I can never identify with that. Those people are pagans and heathens and out there doing stuff I could never do. I'm talking about that lull, that lull to apathy where we trade conviction and allegiance to Jesus for convenience and allegiance to a lesser God. You know how easy it is to conform to the pattern and the customs of that in your life, in your Christian life as you follow Jesus? Just exist and see what happens. But you see, transformation is slow, hard, work. 
Paul says it here, by changing the way you think. You know how hard it is to help somebody change the way that they think? That's why people who have had trauma in their life, it takes them years for their brain to begin to think differently about themselves. It takes years to, in some way, sort of reprogram the way that they think. It is slow, hard work. And Paul is talking here about a battle that exists in the mind. Any of you ever felt like you're battling in your mind? In some ways, you're suffering in your mind? And the invitation here is to let your mind be transformed, but that is not easy work. Discipleship to Jesus, real discipleship to Jesus is a form of suffering for Jesus. Why? 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 Like, why is it that way? Because in doing that, you become less like the person you might so easily be and more like the person Jesus wants you to become. You battle an addictive behavior. You battle generational sins in your family of origin. You battle out, battle through some really hard things that have happened in your life. It will feel, and to get to the other side of healing and wholeness, it will feel like suffering in many ways. But here's the good news. I love what Paul concludes with here in chapter one. He says this, we are in this struggle together. You do not have to do that battle alone. You do not have to suffer alone. You do not have to walk through discipleship to Jesus alone. Paul is reminding his church. He is reminding these beautiful people, and I think his words remind us today, that you do not have to do this alone. We struggle together. So three things really, really quick, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to let you go today. How do we live this out? The first one is this, is recognize that Jesus is the true king worth giving all of our allegiance to. Jesus is the true king, and he is worth giving all of our allegiance to. The second thing is this, is that Jesus has given us the mission to unify around. We don't have to hunt and search and question and wonder what it is that we're supposed to unify. Jesus has given us that mission to unify around. And number three is this, Jesus is our model for suffering. Before Jesus begins his earthly ministry, after he comes out of the, 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 the Jordan River being baptized, the dove descends, this is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased, all of the things, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. It's a form of suffering that he endured. He is a model for us of suffering, but also he went to the cross and endured the cross. He suffered and became our model for that. Gordon Fee, last thing, says this, a crucified Lord produces disciples who themselves take up a cross as they follow him. So, so I want to close in two ways today. The first one is this, is, is an opportunity to just come back to Jesus. It is an opportunity to simply say, Jesus, I want to 
I want my allegiance to be with you. I want you to be king and Lord over all. But the second one is this is an opportunity to actually receive Jesus, to trust in him, to say, Jesus, I, I want to believe in you, but I don't want to suffer alone. And I want to embrace that privilege of not only believing, but suffering for the sake of Jesus. So I would love to have a conversation with you about that. I would love to to get an opportunity just to hear your story and to hear what's going on in your life and and pray with you. And so what I want to say is if you want to pray to receive Christ or maybe in your own life, you've just said yes to Jesus this morning, just somewhere through the course of this message or even now you've just said, yes, Jesus, I I want to follow you. I want you to email me at jason at gracehill901.com. It's that simple. I just want you to email me. You can find me out in the lobby at Grace Hill and Five as soon as the service is over with. But we want to take a moment. I want to have a moment with you where I can help you begin to take some next steps and understand and and learn how to begin to read scripture and, and what discipleship to Jesus looks like.